You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 130, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's going to be a great show. I visit with Peter Suderman, who's a managing editor at Reason Magazine. He writes extensively on healthcare policy, federal budget policy, and he's just generally someone who really has a good feel for how government bureaucracies work. Specifically today, we're going to be talking about Dr. Anthony Fauci and his role in the pandemic, but also more generally to people who are in public health positions of those authorities who come up with edicts, plans, uh, warnings, and things for the public. And these are the ones who have been largely driving the policy changes and the strategy for controlling the pandemic since the start. We're going to talk about how these strategies have generally failed, how they've been counterproductive, and really how we can do better. And I think you'll have a couple laughs at the expense of our wise overlords at the FDA, CDC, and elsewhere. But first, have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you're burned out, need a change of pace, or looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenens might be the solution for you. Not sure where to start? LocumStory.com is a place where you can get real, unbiased answers to your questions. They answer basic questions like, what is Locum Tenens? Two more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, various specialties, and how Locum Tenens can work for you. Go to locumstory.com or drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory and get the answers. Finally, if you want links to today's show, you can go to theparadox.com slash 130. There you can sign up for email. You can send a note to me, maybe with a show idea or something you want to see covered. And while you're traipsing about the internet, why don't you stop by your podcast player and leave a five-star review to tell others how great the show is. If you have not yet subscribed to the show, obviously hit the subscribe button. There you can get every show, every week, and you won't miss a single one. Finally, if you're new to the show, 
I'd recommend you go to the archives, and you can find that at theparadox.com slash blog. And there you can find a list of all the podcasts that I've done. And look for a couple of subjects and things you find interesting. In 130 episodes, we've covered a ton of different topics, both the practice of medicine, people are doing disruptive entrepreneurial things in the space, and other subjects which, you know, obviously outside of COVID, things like, what is brain death? What about physician suicides? What causes it? Burnout, financial issues, and more. But without further ado, Fauci's failure and coronavirus with Peter Suderman. Enjoy. Well, hey, I'm here with my new friend, Peter Suderman, who's a managing editor of Reason.com. He's also, well, let's be honest, you're pretty much the star of the Reason Roundtable podcast that comes out <laughs> That's weekly. That's very kind. I don't, I don't know if uh, my three excellent, excellent colleagues would agree with that, but I, but I appreciate it. Who brings the best jo- jokes and puns? I mean, without a doubt, that's you. The best jokes and puns. So, the the actual answer to that is um, that I have to uh, I have to give you some like inside uh, scoop here, which is that the best jokes and puns are all in the five minutes before and after the podcast, when everybody <laughs> is just saying stuff that doesn't make it on air because it's not quite as focused. Which is saying something, given the given some the occasional lack of focus on the uh, Reason Roundtable podcast. Yeah, I think when you rely on Matt Welch to keep you in uh, on on uh, target, that also is going to just sort of have a little bit wayward course for your show. But you guys do great. It's, I really enjoy it a, a ton, and so I appreciate what you Thank do. Thank you. It adds a lot uh, of character. Uh, I mean, to, uh, he 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 brings a lot of character to the to the show, and he has kept me on course in many many ways throughout my career. Right. So, uh, Peter, who's uh, speaking to right now, thanks for joining the Paradox podcast. And uh, you write on healthcare, federal budget, tech policy, pop culture. And essentially, I kind of feel like on the show, especially, you're definitely the most wonkish, the the most person who's most policy focused. So I'd like to begin. And I want to talk to you about public health policy, basically. And obviously, we're in the midst of the COVID pandemic. I think we're exiting. This has been my opinion for about a month now. But why don't you go through, I guess... Let's talk about Fauci, who is probably the most famous person over the last year in the United States when it comes to COVID, and talk about Fauci and sort of how you think he's handled the the pandemic. Because if you look at it as far as the CDC and FDA, sort of the and maybe the CDC even more so than the FDA, but the FDA, the the goal is that you actually, you know, handle pandemics, epidemics, like real infectious diseases, and so this is like the one time to shine. How do you feel he's done and where do you think he's done well or fallen? Well, I think there have been obvious issues with uh, with Fauci's leadership um, and that they're uh, in some ways even more apparent now um, than they were uh, at the time over the course of the last year. Um, that's not to say that he's done everything wrong. And obviously it was an exceptionally difficult task. But a big part of what he in particular has been tasked with doing is communicating what we know, what we think we know, what we should all kind of accept, um, the the facts on the ground about the coronavirus and how to respond to it. And Fauci has over and over again just miscommunicated basic information and he has miscommunicated in two different ways. Um, the first, I think, is that he has just told people things that are not quite right. That are just that are either <laughs> that are either design uh, th- that are either not right because 
he's wrong and has a misunderstanding or because he has decided to tell people something that isn't quite right in an effort to change their behavior. Um, and, and I think that that is, I, I think that's problematic. Um, I also think the other way that he has failed to communicate well is that the CDC, the FDA, government agencies in general, um, but especially government health agencies, they're bad at communicating certainty levels. And so this is a thing that anybody who sort of has a, a, a field of knowledge that they, that they follow, right, especially a sort of advanced scientific field of knowledge, is that specialists within that field have ways of communicating certainty and uncertainty, uh, right? There's confidence intervals. Yeah. There are, you know, uh, CBO does this thing, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, where they uh, where they try to provide point estimates um, for everything, but then they will tell you what we're doing is providing a point estimate that is right in the middle of our certainty level. And then they will have paragraphs in their reports that say, well, you know, here's kind of the ways that we might be wrong. Our uncertainty level on this is, you know, th th this is all somewhat uncertain because these are economic projections and who, who in the world knows uh, what's going to happen. And the CDC and the FDA and the public health community in in general, but specifically when it comes to the government apparatus, is just very bad at doing that. And they're very bad at telling people, we think we know this right now, but this might change in two weeks or two months or two years. And so they communicate absolutely everything as a dead 100% certainty this, this minute. As if this is a thing that is that is simply as 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 known as the sky is blue and gravity exists, and then it turns out they're wrong, and it's not even they're, that they're wrong necessarily all the time because they are malicious. Although I think there is at least in some cases some malice involved. It's that they're wrong because they have been because they're because they are unable to to trust people to handle uncertainty. And so that's just sort of built into the character of the public health community right now. Um, and they have really, really failed at the communications aspect of the pandemic, uh, which, like I said, Fauci is, has been at the center of throughout under both President um, Biden and uh, President Trump. Yeah, and I think there's no question that that humans in general have a have a real difficulty in assessing risk. And we've talked about it in this show a number of times you know, what is a one in 20 chance something happening is, and then you have to try and assess, is it something that I worry about happening or like just tripping or is this like, you know, falling off a cliff, right? I mean, it makes a difference what your chances of a certain uh, result and, and communicating that to everyday people. I mean, I'll talk, when I talk to a patient, I can tell if my example, my analogy for like, you know, what your risk is of something, if it's not hitting home. And so I may try a different one that may, you know, ring differently with someone. But obviously, if you're taking, speaking to a you know camera, you can't you can't change your message based on how reading the room. And so, I mean, I I understand those those difficulties that public health officials have, but I feel like the with this maybe it's become more evident with this crisis, I guess you'll call it, is that there is a lack of. Um, and you mentioned trust. I would almost say, uh, yeah, I guess that's probably the best word, but. It feels like they just it's a very patronizing sort of attitude towards the public and not 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 trusting that they can accept the fact that things can't be known. 
And I don't know if that's, and I don't think it's unique to public health, but it seems like it's been especially troublesome. And it causes these weird things like Fauci saying, well, you absolutely don't need masks, right? At the beginning, it's, that's crazy. And then a month later, it's like, well, of course you wish you should wear masks. And then even just recently, he said, well, you, you know, why would you not wear masks at outdoor, outdoors? It keeps you safe, obviously. And then he said, well, it's self-evident that you don't ever need to wear masks outdoors. And then those are like, I guess, almost like obvious lies, I suppose, if you really had that information one time or the other. And and we even admit that for the mask usage, it was to prevent a run of masks, right? Yeah. And then other times when he's like, he basically admits that he was sort of fudging the numbers of herd immunity because he thought, well, if I make it too high, people think it's impossible to reach and they'll just give up. I, those are the, do you think that's a reflection of just the attitude of the agencies and sort of the job? Or is it something else? Like, I mean, the guy's 80, right? We've got like a 80-year-old president, 80-year-old running this sort of pandemic. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, I don't think it has all that much to do with his age because um, that is that is just absolutely typical of public health authorities, whether they're, uh, whether they're somewhat advanced in age or whether they are <laughs> really quite young. And I think, you know, the, it all goes back to the issue of trust. And they don't trust people, uh, public health authorities and public health experts tend not to trust the masses, tend not to trust ordinary people in basically any way. And so that's, they don't trust them to kind of be able to reckon with the complications of uncertainty, which is admittedly a difficult thing to do, right? And people make bad decisions, yeah. but they then, the, the, the whole sort of modern public health apparatus is built around not trusting people to be able to make good decisions for themselves. <laughs> yeah. That is, that's the essential idea about public health is that left to their own devices, people will make bad decisions. And so we, as public authorities, need to come in and correct them somehow or another. And whether that's by telling them something that may or may not be true, um, as in the case of uh, lots and lots of diet advice, for example, from the government, from public health authorities over the past several decades, or whether that's uh, in terms of regulating their behavior and specifically saying, hey, look, you can't do this anymore, or trying to come up with nudges uh, that that push their behavior, that push people's behavior in certain directions. And you can think of, you know, uh, notably things like uh, limits on soda size in, um, you know, in, right. in New York City, which was a public health intervention, because the assumption was that without public health authorities to tell people what the appropriate size for a soda is, People would not make good decisions for themselves. And may, it may well be true that people are consuming an unhealthy amount of sugar through soda. But what the public health community seems to think is that, oh, this is a problem for us to solve via regulation and via um, via messaging that is, it doesn't matter whether, whether it's true. It matters, matters whether the effect on people's behavior is what we want it to be. And I think that's, I think that's patronizing, like you said. I also think it's ineffective. And that's what we've seen through the pandemic is that, in fact, people have not behaved in ways that are optimal and not shifted their behavior often because there's bad public health information out there um, that is, in many cases, expressing certainty about things that are 
maybe assumed to be known in the moment. Maybe this is, in fact, if you surveyed uh, a certain number of, of college epidemiologists, you know, uh, public health professors, whatever, uh, they would, you know, 64% of them would agree with this. But, but, the, but when it comes out of them, you know, when, it, when, a, when a CDC or FDA official says this stuff, they're not saying, well, look, this is sort of where we're at right now. What they're saying is, this is capital T truth. And you must abide by it throughout your life. And so we went from not wearing masks uh, at all, because obviously they weren't helpful, to actually, if you're at a park alone by yourself, you can't see another human being, and you're unlikely to encounter another human being, you should still be wearing a mask. And people did that. And I live in Washington, D.C., where the mask usage for people who are walking uh, uh, blocks away from any other human being um, where they had no reasonable expectation of certainly of, co of coming in contact with a crowd, but really even with any other person, right? You would see them uh, at the, uh, on the other end of your block at night, walking their dogs and they'd be wearing masks and everyone was doing it because that's what the science said, except of course the science didn't actually ever say that. What uh, instead, what we had was a situation where the public health authorities we're saying that. And those are different things. But we have, I think, uh, there's a media role in this. Um, and there's a sort of, uh, and there's a political role in this where the Biden administration has suggested, has basically said, well, look, you know, uh, um, whenever we, uh, we the, if, you, if you go back to the beginning of the Biden administration, when he first took office, it was really interesting. His answer whenever he was asked about the pandemic and what people should do, not what his administration was going to do, but what individuals should do, his answer was always, well, we're going to follow the science. Yeah. And that gave people the impression that whatever his administration's public health authorities were saying was the science, the science, as if it is a singular thing that can be known with great certainty at any given time. The, one of the biggest problems, of course, is the truth aspect. And, uh, and I, you know, I, with a health, with a policy, you know, health, public health advocate, or what do you want to call them, a government official, you know, whenever pretty much your only ha tools a hammer, you're going to use the nail, the regulations, or the rule, or the laws. That's really your only way of persuading people. Because, um, I wonder what would have happened had the message been different from the beginning. You know, and. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's it's easy to say, well, have they not lie, lied at the beginning? Because clearly there are a lot of lies being told, or at least um, once the evidence showed that things weren't true, people refused to back down on them. And uh, it eroded what little public trust you have in those institutions. And then that's a trust you can't get back. I mean, once you lose trust with someone or an institution, it's really hard to ever uh, get that back again. It's sort of like, um, you know, you have a 10 great experiences at a restaurant, and then you have just a just abysmal experience, you're a lot less likely to go back and you're a lot less likely to trust it, even though you've had generally good, good experience at that place. Um, I wonder with the, what would have happened. I mean, do you, th if they had said from the start, you know, we don't know what's best. We don't know how bad this virus is going to be. It looks like it's going to be pretty bad. We suggest you do what you can to protect yourself, which we suggest probably the best thing to do is avoid people when you can. If you're sick, don't show up for work, you know, be careful around other relatives and just be mindful. Uh, and then, as more evidence came out, I I don't I just don't know how things would have played out any differently um, in the pandemic. And maybe it, by looking at all the different countries of the world, I think they probably had some sort of flavor on that sort of response. And pretty much everywhere, 
especially now you're seeing Asia catch up. It looks like it's about the same no matter where you are. I mean, <laughs> so maybe it didn't matter. Yeah, it turns out those noble lies aren't so noble, and in fact, they're counterproductive. And this is, this is you know, uh, if I were trying to make this case to Fauci, to, uh, to someone at the CDC or the FDA, um, I would just say, look, I get you. I get what you're trying to do. You're trying to get people to do things that you, that they're going to resist doing. Um, and so your instinct is going to be to not tell them unpleasant truths and to not make things complicated for them, um, even though the real world is complicated. Uh, but by doing that, as you said, they are breaking the trust that you need if you are an, a public health authority to convince people to do things. And so right. it's simply counterproductive. Um, I also think, uh, you know, I think it's hard to come up with a, a really great counterfactual about the messaging um, in, in terms of what we could and should have done. Uh, but the, the big thing that I think was missing is, is a positive message. And this is, I, I know this is strange, right? The COVID is no, terrifying. Right. COVID is terrifying. Like in a lot of ways, it actually, it killed hundreds of thousands of Americans, right? It's like, it's 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 real and it's super deadly. And it's like, it's actually something that is that has taken a huge toll on American life and, and the rest of the world as well. But what people told us was, be deeply afraid. You, you can't even really know how, how terrible this thing is going to be. You just have to like stay away from kind of everyone and not do anything and, and what they what we could have said, and this was pretty apparent from I think it, uh, certainly the end of April and maybe even uh, the end of March. What what public health authorities could have said was, go outside, do everything outside. What we want from you for the next, we're going to start with six weeks, and then eventually we're going to realize it's going to be three months, and then six months, and then a year. What we're going to say is, this is not what you expected from life. This is not uh, the ideal situation. But if you simply do everything outside, you're basically going to be fine and meet right. like have your meet people outside, go to parties with friends outside, have your children play outside, go outside and enjoy the fact that America is a beautiful country and we have great weather in a lot of places. And sometimes we don't have great weather, but there's fire and fire is wonderful. And gathering around a fire with your friends <laughs> is great. Go do that. And that. That wasn't the message at all. In fact, uh, in, in especially in sort of blue states that were like the follow the science states, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of mayors and a lot of governors actually closed outdoor uh, facilities for people and closed parks and playgrounds and all this stuff and said you have to stay inside. You have to stay inside. And this it was this mean spirited, restrictive message that wasn't even true. And if we had simply had a message that said, "Look, people, this is this is going to be hard." This will, in fact, be difficult. You are not going to be able to go hang out uh, in your basement home theater for the next year with 10 of your closest friends. That's going to be the thing we're asking you not to do. But we're, what we are saying is go do everything outside. And the thing is, Americans kind of figured this out on their own. And if you walk around any major city right now, everything has been moved. Not everything, but many, 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 many things have been moved outside. But this was not for the most part, with the encouragement and the sort of the positive direction of our political leaders and our public health authorities, who were, at, especially in the first couple of months, really quite anxious about people going outside. And you had all this media coverage of people on Florida beaches that in retrospect is just embarrassing, just incredibly embarrassing because 
outside at the beach, even even a beach that in a photograph looks a little bit crowded, looks like there's a bunch of people there. Totally safe. Uh, not totally safe, but about yeah, yeah. as safe a place as you could possibly be, except for shut in alone in a closet, uh, you know, with a HEPA filter. Right. Like there's no like if you're going to do stuff and people have to do stuff together, they should be doing it outside in the middle of a pandemic like this. And that message was so muddled and so confused and also so relentlessly scared and negative that I think people felt like, you know, they didn't have, they couldn't do what the CD, in many cases, they couldn't do what the public health authorities were saying they should do because it sounded scared, it sounded impossible, it sounded difficult, rather than a little bit of a challenge to go do something that was that could be fun and could be interesting and could be healthy yeah. even. Well, I, you're absolutely right. And I think it, another aspect of the positive message you could have had and I think still could is, I mean, if you look at the disease, the disease course and you look at those affected and who are most afflicted and who are dying, I mean, there's no question there's a stratification by age. Yeah. And we're obviously much more concerned when we have children dying in the streets of things than people who are in their 80s. I mean, maybe it's a morbid way of looking at things, but I think that's pretty natural. People want you know, their children to outlive them. And so it, it only makes sense that that would have been something that you could have maybe not celebrated, but say, hey, this is reassurance. It's not like polio, right? It's not like something we were worrying about in the 50s where we had kids becoming paralyzed and iron lungs. I mean, this, is, this was a disease in many ways that was stratified to those who were old and sick. Uh, and you, that could have been a much more positive message about that and say, aren't we lucky that this is, these are people who are afflicted. It doesn't mean that we, you know, do whatever willy nilly, but let's at least, you know, sigh and say, well, we're kind of lucky that this pandemic just affects, you know, older people versus the youngsters. Uh, I think that would have also been very helpful, but you're totally right. Being outdoors would have been hugely helpful. And another thing about the public health and the CDC and FDA that I was upset about from the very beginning is I think when it came to the initial response from from the virus when it comes to testing. I felt like the FDA and, C and CC, I think they worked sort of in concert with the testing apparatus. They really just hamstrung this country in ability to figure out the extent of the virus. Now, maybe ultimately it wouldn't have mattered had you know, like, oh, it's everywhere. And maybe, you know, there's no contact tracing available at that point anyway. But I felt like they really prevented us from getting a handle on what's going on for a long time because of the blockage of tests. Do you think that's pretty accurate? Yeah, so that's, I, I think that's exactly right. And I actually think that the messaging failure and the testing failure are related problems because the reason that the, that the testing uh, issue was was so great was that the uh, CDC uh, acts as a sort of centralized um, choke point for test kits for novel viruses, and so the rollout of the of the coronavirus test kit um, from around, I believe it was in the month of February and into March, was was botched, and they their their initial uh, their initial test kits were wrong. They had to recall a bunch of them. They just did right. it. They did it wrong. Um, and here and what they could have done was say, look, there's a bunch of different organizations that want to put together test kits and want to sort of test things on their own, right? And they could have had a distributed mechanism for this, right? So there were there were uh, universities, there were private labs, um, there were all, the, all of these non-governmental organizations that wanted to try different things. And some of those organizations, I think it is fair to say, might have been a little bit off. Like that's a possibility, like a thing that might have happened, right? They might have not sure. produced perfect 
uh, kits. But what happened was because the CDC said, we are the only ones. We are going to be the choke point. You have to pass through us to get this test kit. Because they said, we are going to decide what the test kit is and isn't, is again, this issue of certainty and of, of confidence in what they're doing, of being the centralized provider of what the science is at any given moment when it came to this uh, disease. Because of that, we lost six to 10 weeks up front in terms of testing on this virus. And uh, and yes, there are, there are risks that are not and maybe not even trivial, um, that are real and should be discussed for distributed systems. Because you can have, then you can have, uh, there's a bunch of different things in play and people might not know which one is the right one or the best one. On the other hand, those, those systems uh, tend to work themselves out much faster, right? You, we discover errors. Yes. Um, this is, this is, that's the discovery process is have a bunch of people try different things. And then we figure out which ones work. And what the CDC says is, oh, no, no, no. We cannot have a, uh, we can't have a discovery process. The discovery process is us in our offices in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., and we will make those decisions and no one else can. And so when, the, when you have uh, public authorities acting like that, what happens is that process is radically slowed down. And that's what we saw um, with, the, with the rollout of the test kits. And then it was not only radically slowed down because of the centralization, it was radically slowed down because the CDC blew the initial test kits. They just made them badly and they didn't work right. And so yeah. there was just this, this huge choke point that failed and did not allow information to pass through it in a way that we easily could have if the CDC and the FDA had said upfront, look, this is an unusual situation. This is an emergency. Uh, what we need right now is to take an unusual approach and we're going to let private labs and universities that are clamoring to develop test kits that have the resources on their own already. We are going to let them go ahead on a provisional basis um, and we're going to see what happens. And I think we would have been in a much better position with regards to testing if they had done that. And then the other thing that they did was they didn't allow rapid at-home testing, which, yes, is not perfect. Yes. It is not perfect. It, it is not a substitute for, like, it doesn't, it, it is not a perfect substitute for knowing whether or not you have the virus on any given day. On the other hand, mass rapid at-home testing would have been a huge benefit throughout last year prior to the uh, uh, the release of the of the vaccine and we didn't have it because the fda decided that we couldn't have it and that's the only yeah. reason we didn't have it. it it is there and it would have been cheap it would have been 15 bucks a test or less no question and i mean you saw people had basically had the testing ability with saliva weeks after we had the yeah. the sequencing and i mean there there's no question that the fda and the cdc really just block that. And, and I think it's a great testament to a centralization versus a decentralized approach to solving problems, right? I mean, uh, I think you, since we had, we're forced with a centralized solution, when it didn't work, it caused massive problems. Yeah. And also, even when they did work, it still took a long time to even get it developed to start. And we see this in medicine all the time where we have various you know, products that come out that are you know, the next great whatever. And if people are, 10 people are trying to solve that problem, 
it sorts out really pretty quickly uh, what's which ones are good or not. I mean, it, it doesn't take years. It's not like you're going to get sent down the wrong road uh, path for you know, imaging techniques or laboratory testing. Or people don't use stuff that doesn't work. It's actually no, pretty straightforward. It and as soon as as soon as it's clear that something doesn't work, the majority of people will turn against it. Now, sometimes what what you learn from these decentralized processes is that different things work for different people and that it's there's not yes. just one solution and that's a good thing to learn too and you can't learn that in a cdc led one one solution only process yeah no question and and we're not talking about a process that takes years to find out like oh a total knee replacement we don't really know if it fails after 5 years or 10 i mean this is something that you knew right away if someone oh i guess they had covid i guess we missed that right and then you kind of figure out uh, the the process what's good and bad the other thing i guess actually in looking at the states and the response to mandates and things like that. I think because we have a decentralized system in that, at least with regulation and, and rulemaking, you definitely see that, you know, you come to a realization that one spot, one way is not the only way, right? And you try different ways and find out, I mean, ultimately it didn't really matter what you did, at least from as far as uh, the regulatory standpoint, I don't think from a regulation and, and law standpoint, really what uh, helps, you know, with the outcomes. The other big thing with the FDA and I think I've heard a number of people criticize this, is not only did they mess up the testing, but then when it came to the vaccine approval rate, uh, yeah, we got a, a vaccine way faster than I predicted, way faster than most people thought was even possible. And, uh, you know, it's really a miraculous vaccine and so many technological uh, advancements, really incredible. However, I mean, we had that ability to have that vaccine before summer started. You could have done trials a lot sooner. You could have had forced trials, yet the FDA demanded you know, the slowdown process, yeah. then they like go on, oh, well, it's a weekend. We don't work on the weekends. But, you know, meanwhile, a thousand Americans are dying every day. We're like, well, we don't work on Saturdays and Sundays, right? <laughs> like you couldn't just convene on a week. If it was a nuclear war, they're not going to say, well, we'll come back on Monday and decide what to do, right? I mean, it's like, it seemed like a crazy sort of process. It's obviously the bureau bureaucracy that, that leads this. Uh, why did you talk about the vaccine response to the FDA and how they could have done, done it better? Yeah. The more I think about this, the more I think uh, that this is the counterfactual that matters and that we should be talking about um, and that people need to understand the, that the FDA probably cost thousands and maybe tens or even hundreds of thousands of Americans their lives um, because they delayed the rollout of the vaccine. And they did it in a bunch of ways, but I'm, I'm going to talk about just two that I think are the most obvious. And so the Pfizer vaccine was submitted for approval on, I believe it was November 20th of 2020. Um, and it wasn't approved until December, I think it was 10th or 11th. So that's two and a half, three weeks, diff uh, right? Not a gigantic amount of time, but, yeah. um, but not a trivial amount of time either, especially when what happened starting uh, right around Thanksgiving was we entered the deadliest phase of the pandemic from Thanksgiving through uh, about the beginning of March or so. Uh, we entered the we en we had a huge surge in cases and deaths all over the country. And so what if the FDA had done what they did in the UK. So again, not something that's crazy and like impossible to pull off, not something that no, uh, you know, first world country would ever try, just what they did in the UK and had rolling review of the documents and simply had approved the vaccine the day that the application was submitted. This was a, this was a real possibility. And the FDA chose not to. They knew what they were doing and they chose not to. And they did it 
for two reasons, as far as I understand. One is the best reason, and I don't think it's a good one, but the best reason is they felt like if they didn't put on a show, and again, this is, goes back to the kind of noble lie thing, they didn't put on a show of really going through the documentation and looking at it seriously and you know, uh, making sure that it was all correct, then they might increase vaccine hesitancy. Well, okay, maybe, but there's no actual evidence or research on this. That is total political judgment. They have no papers, they have no studies, there's no survey data that says that, that they need to do this in order to, uh, to reduce vaccine hesitancy. Um, that's just a, a political judgment that they have made um, based on their gut instinct, based on, based on nothing. Um, right. And the other reason they did it is because the people at the FDA and the public health community have this just like weirdly deep belief in the power of bureaucratic process, the power and importance of it. They think it really, really matters. And they are willing to wait two or three weeks on a vaccine that can save tens of thousands of American lives uh, if you roll it out two or three weeks earlier in order to uphold the value of just uh, in order to uphold the bureaucratic process. This is like, honestly, it's it's incredibly offensive. It's horrifying to think about. But they believe that because they think that if you don't go through the process, you will undermine trust in the FDA. <laughs> and this is like when you see what they're doing, what they are doing should undermine trust in the FDA. And so we could have had the vaccine. We definitely, even going through all of the, 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 the uh, trials and stuff that the FDA currently requires, we could have had the vaccine two or three weeks earlier, could have been putting shots in arms um, around Thanksgiving rather than around the middle of December. And we could have mitigated, not prevented, but I think we could have mitigated uh, the spread of the of the virus uh, during its deadliest period. And we could have, if with some like half smart age prioritization, going to nursing homes and old people first, we could have uh, focused on the uh, the communities, uh, the populations that are most likely to uh, to die from COVID. Um, and we could have saved a lot of lives and the FDA just chose not to do that. And then the second thing they did was they didn't allow challenge trials. Now, challenge trials are, you know, um, uh, are more controversial because they require uh, you to basically pay people to accept the risk of being directly and intentionally exposed to a potentially deadly virus. But there's a bunch of ways around this. And again, the UK is doing this now. This is not something that is there's way out of uh, the the, the uh, zone of possibility for, uh, for a, a Western democracy. The UK does this now with coronavirus um, uh, drugs, and they started in February, not last year, like they should have, but it is being done right now. And if we had done the combination of challenge trials and rolling review, we could definitely have had a well-tested, um, quite safe vaccine, certainly by the middle of September. And if we had had it in September, and we it had taken three to four months to sort of cover the uh, the, the really highly the high risk population of, of quite old people and uh, people with uh, uh, autoimmune diseases and stuff like sure. that. Yeah, yeah, we could have we could have maybe not completely stopped, but heavily mitigated the part of the virus, the 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 uh, the, the December through February surge that killed. I think if I if I go back and I do the numbers in my head, something like a hundred thousand Americans. Many of those deaths yeah. were unnecessary and the FDA could have prevented them. And they 
didn't in the name of preserving trust in the FDA. I mean, it's it's incredible and it's awful. Yeah. Well, and, and you can almost argue even worse is they they prevented the the distribution of the drug in for reasons of safety. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. right. Which is the great irony. Right. These people are dying um, left and right from this uh, from this virus. And, you know, th- there's no question the FDA. I've done episodes on this before, but there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who have died because of delayed acquisition of life-saving medications yeah. for one to two, three years for because of the phase three or phase four trials at the, by the or phase three trials by the FDA for efficacy. Uh, you know that the HIV is a good example. There, you know, cocktails and things people be using, but and that uh, is where those are, Fauci uh, made right. his bones, well, right? Yeah. As a as a public health specialist, was he came of age and it, you know, sort of uh, uh, in the in the HIV uh, outbreak, and that was his. That's where he. That's where he sort of became what he is today, in a lot of yeah. ways. And I think it's an interesting thought experiment. To imagine if we applied right to try laws, which we have in this country for certain, um, you know, if you have a terminal illness, but if people said, "Hey, I don't care what the the risk is to me from this virus," Pfizer, you know, Johnson Johnson, they say it's safe. I trust them, and I've seen their preliminary data and animal models or whatever. I'm willing to to get this, you know, not a challenge trial, but I'm just willing to get it. Let me have it, and maybe we're talking about July. Maybe it's even, you know, June or. September, August, I don't know. But uh, you could have very quickly gained information as well that these were effective vaccines a lot sooner. And um, I don't know. it. It And what do you have to risk? I mean, these are people who are willing to volunteer for it. I, I think the right to try would have been a reasonable argument to make for this. But the FDA insists on their, their efficacy trials. And it's kind of a miracle that they just said, well, we're going to let you go a little bit earlier. But I think there's immense political pressure and uh, you know, to actually try and control this, the spread of things. Yeah, the vaccine was developed over a weekend. Yeah, in January, right in the yeah. middle of January, before before virtually any American had heard of or cared about COVID nineteen. Before anybody thought that this was not before anybody, but before many, many, many people thought that this was going to be a serious issue uh, for Americans, um, and. And it, you you can't you can't responsibly as a as a big you know uh, multinational company start putting vaccines into arms one week after somebody comes up with a computer model <laughs> and you're like hey here's the first first I mean <laughs> e- even if e- forget the ethical stuff forget the uh, forget the advertising forget that like even the test you just have a you have a production problem these things are there's there's factories that have yeah. to be spun up and it's a bunch of issues there. But phase three trials started at the end of July and phase, the phase three trials were long and expensive as they tend to be because they require tens of thousands of people. And you can you can get through phase three trial. You, you can you can do a lot of the work of phase three trials with challenge trials that can be done in a matter of weeks and with hundreds of people rather than tens of thousands. And right. that is something that it, it's not again, this is not like some insane anarchist libertarian idea this is a thing that is happening right now in the uk this is a thing that was raised last year uh, there were folks who were talking about this um even people who had the ear of the trump administration uh so uh people like alex tabarak uh, a, a economist uh, affiliated with george mason university uh and uh, marginal revolution 
um, was talking about challenge trials last summer. And he is not somebody who policymakers have never heard of, but they just wouldn't do it. And as a result, we had to wait from the end of July until the middle of December to start vaccinating people. Um, and I just think it's it's crazy and it's wrong. It's like, I mean, we're sort of like, we're joking about this and this like, but when you think about the incredible loss of life that resulted because the FDA wanted to uphold their, their paperwork requirements, yeah, it's, it's really kind of awful. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we could be, we could be where we are now four months ago, yeah. right? Maybe if we had controlled this a lot sooner and we ask 18 year olds and healthy people to do crazy things like, you know, D-Day was insane, right? Like your storm, your chance of survival is really low, but we're just going to send you out there. And, uh, you know, this is obviously much safer than that sort of scenario. And so it's, it's disheartening that that's sort of the approach we had. But I, I, one of the, the questions I've had with this, with this, you know, kind of stepping away from COVID, which is kind of hard to do right now. But when you look at the FDA and the CDC, but we're trying. Right, we're doing our best. <laughs> but with the CDC and FDA, they're I mean, well. I'll take the FDA out of this. Is just we'll say keep it the the CDC. Their sole function is focusing on epidemics and on infectious disease. You know, something like a global pandemic, which seems totally unlikely. I mean, what's the chance of that happening? But assuming that that happened, that's what they're supposed to be focused on. Do you think the fact that they really haven't had anything to sort of work on for decades and they call all these things that are not really epidemics, they call them epidemics, right? It's yeah. like, you know, obesity or smoking or things that are public health problems without a doubt, but they call them epidemics and they, uh, and they sort of, when actually an epidemic happened, they just were like, what, what do I don't know what to do? <laughs> this is not something we, cause we're just used to like convincing people not to do something unhealthy. Yeah, I th I think they suffered from an epidemic of non-epidemics. Um, <laughs> and in fact, you know, uh, I, as I just noted, uh, Fauci and a bunch of the kind of senior, senior leadership of uh, the CDC. Very senior. Uh, yes. Um, but also sort of the, the top ranks of public health expertise. A lot of them were trained during the HIV outbreak um, in the 1980s. Right. And they learned lessons from that. Uh, lessons that were not, in many cases, applicable to an aerosol-based yeah, virus right, no, absolutely. Yeah. that uh, affected not just, that, that affected, you know, essentially, um, Right, like the, the the entire population rather than subpopulations. Um, uh, again, not that anyone, not to say that uh, HIV there were just, uh, doesn't affect some people, but like it was the 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 most affected groups were clear, you know, subpopulations. Um, yes, no right. Question. It's just they're just very different diseases, and generals are always fighting the last war public health advocates are always fighting the last disease and i think that's what we saw here where they just didn't know how to react to to a virus that was spread primarily by being in a room and talking to people right like be, being in a <laughs> right. being in a badly ventilated room and talking to people that's how you got COVID was if you went to if you went to like a, a really great bar 
and it was a small, dark space and you were close to somebody and having a conversation for an hour. That's how you were going to get COVID. You were not going to get COVID at at the playground, at the playground. You weren't going to get it, um, you know, even necessarily at the, uh, you know, at the, the sports stadium with the that was uncovered. Right. And so they just didn't understand the communications challenge. And they also didn't understand, um, I think, just literally some of the uh, some of the the science and sort of uh, uh, how to think about spread of a uh, for a for a disease that functions very differently than the one they were trained on. And that's look, that's a common problem for humans. People use use the the thing that they know as a model, but yeah. it's. The way we solve that problem, the best way to solve that problem is by not having a centralized repository of information, but instead allowing a lot of people to argue about how to address this new and novel problem. And what the CDC does is say, wait, 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 there can be no argument. We decide. You guys don't get to decide. You're going to have your arguments, but no, we're going to tell you what is happening and how it is at any given moment. And this is the CDC's pathology, is that they cannot accept uncertainty. They can't accept that they are not going to be uh, perfectly infallible um, purveyors of the science. Again, I hate that phrase because it suggests that there is only one. And in fact, the whole point of science is that there's a lot yes. of different things happening and it sort of works itself out, but there's no, there's a bunch of sciences. And I, and like in this house, we believe in the sciences, but we don't believe necessarily in the science. And, and I think the CDC just sort of for reasons of institutional character um, cannot operate that way. Yeah. Well, and, and I think ultimately even if they operate that way, you have to have a check and the check should be your elected officials, the ones who have to weigh all the things, right? If you have someone who is a singular focus on something, well, they're going to tell you the absolute way to optimize or minimize your risk for whatever it might be. But I mean, obviously the best way to control and eliminate car crashes to get rid of cars, but someone has to make a decision and say, well, that's not. You could require all of them to uh, only drive five to 10 miles an hour. Right. But like there's huge costs to this that are that we've decided it's like it's actually better to incur the costs. Um, yeah. And that's that's a difficult decision to to, to make and to think about. Um, but it's one that has to be made and people aren't willing to make it when it comes to public health. Well, I'm so much encouraged now about the public health uh, industry. I think we're going to it's going to be so much better after this. I think I've learned a lot of lessons. <laughs> <laughs> I I still watch them right now, and it drives me crazy. I had Dr. Norchasm on a couple episodes ago where we talked about immunity and how somehow people who've cleared COVID, and when you have plenty of studies showing that they're as, as immune as somebody who's a vaccine, and it makes no biologic sense, or it there's it makes no sense that it'd be any different immunity. Um, you know, maybe a marginally a little bit better one way or the other. Uh, yet they're treated like it's that it didn't happen, and so uh, I this is a more bureaucratic problem too because I think you can't keep track of people who had it and cleared it versus you can definitely say, Oh, this person got a vaccine this day. So we know they're totally safe. We don't trust anyone else. They're all lying or whatever. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're going down the same, we're, we keep having the same battles 
with the public health authorities when they're just kind of ignoring, I hate to say it, the science, right? It's, yeah. I don't know. It's just puzzling. Yeah. So if I want to kind of end on a, a little bit of a note of hope here, I will say, please, I think we didn't learn a lot, but we might have learned something. And 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 the the two things that I think we learned are that I think the media and I mean this even like the the very liberal left, like mainstream media, I think has learned to be at least a little bit more skeptical of the public health community's narrative. Um, and you see this in the rise of, uh, of, of folks like Zainab Tufeki, who has just been excellent about like talking about how bad the public health messaging has been throughout the coronavirus and how how we have told this story wrong. And she is she is a, like a yeah. singular and important voice. And people are going to go back and think, wait, she was right. She was just right. Not like perfectly right. But she was just much more right than almost anyone else for 12 full months. Let's try and do that rather than the other thing. And then and then what is the most locked down state in the country? I think it's pretty clear that the answer is California. I think there's 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 yeah. maybe you could find maybe New York City, maybe some of the other big blue uh, uh uh, or, or big blue urban uh, localities, um, Chicago, where you are, maybe even, you know, there's a couple of other places, uh, Washington, D.C., but the most locked down state in the country has been California. And the rules in California have been insane and crazy. They've had nothing to do with the science. Um, and they've been wildly counterproductive. And guess what's happening is Gavin Newsom is facing a recall election almost entirely because of his bad pandemic governance. And that's not nothing. That's not it's not it's not. Yeah, he might not lose. And we the lesson might be, oh, he can survive it. And um, but what it means is that politicians are going to look at the experience of the governor of the biggest state in the country, the most locked down state, the a, a blue state. California is not like a California is not like a place yeah. that's like, oh, man, we just love individual freedom and expect our governors to like give that to us all the time. No, California <laughs> is not that at all. They are very liberal there and they are very like. Follow the science, do what the public health experts say. And California has looked at Gavin Newsom's governance during this and said, wait, this was awful. Let's never do that again. There is a a meaningful I don't want to say it's necessarily going to be successful, but a meaningful movement to push back against that. And I think that other politicians in the future are going to look at that and say, eh, do I want to be Gavin Newsom? And that's going to at least be yeah, a well, little it's going to be there on the it's whispering in their ear, sitting on their shoulder. Do I want that to happen to me next time? And that might, I hope. I hope, I really hope, because I live in Washington, <laughs> D.C., where things have been strange. Might yeah, make a difference. Can't dance, right? Well, and you know what? I think you're absolutely right. And I look at, to my, I'm in uh, West Michigan, and our governor, Whitmer, has been, you know, the queen of lockdown for quite a while. And with this, when we had our last surge, which, you know, of course, no, no other part of the country outside of Minnesota had this problem in the spring here. 
she did not lock things yeah. down like she did in November. Like November it was kind of fashionable to do that. And I th- think you're right. I think we're obviously a more of a purple state, but you have to, she had to have been looking at what happened in California and how, you know, someone maybe stripped for power and didn't want that to happen to her in Michigan because she did nothing just like the opposite before. Of course, the results are exactly the same. It went away just like it did in a couple of weeks last fall with pretty much the same results. Um, but I think it was entirely because of that and the fact that even her supporters in, within her party, in the Democratic Party, were kind of like, yeah, we, our kids, we want them to go to school. We want them to play soccer or lacrosse or whatever. And so don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So look, it's not going to be a perfect learning, uh, right? We're, we are not going to learn a lot yeah. of lessons that we should learn. That's for sure. But we might learn a few. And I, I mean, I hope so. Boy, do I hope so. Well, and, you know, maybe the tincture of time will help, too, when people look back and say, boy, that was a little kind of crazy what we did. Let's try not to do that again. And that that does take a couple of years to get past the, you know, the fear of the panic and the acceptance like, yeah, you know, where you can kind of convince yourself that you thought differently during the time when you were panicking, maybe, and then that it was a little overblown. Well, Peter Suman, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, Managing editor from Reason Magazine or Reason.com. Uh, thanks so much for your expertise and uh, for being on The Paradox. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Peter Suderman for a really fun conversation. But before we finish up, don't forget to visit locumstory.com or drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory to get real, unbiased answers to all your locum tenants questions. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.